Hello, everybody, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is your host, Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut, and my co-host, my partner in crime in Atlanta, Georgia, Mark Dunn. Mark, good evening. Good evening, Carl. Hello, everybody. Uh, once again, good to be here on .NET Rocks. And for those listeners who don't know, we actually tape the show in two locations. I tape it in Connecticut, and you're in Atlanta right now, right? That's right. It seems that way anyway. It does, it does seem that way. Is it particularly hot and muggy down there? You had like uh, yes, actually, it's very hot and muggy down here tonight. Uh, we've we've been through a a heavy rain, which has been nice, but uh, you know it's got to pay the piper now. It's kind of hot. Has the I rain, don't like that either. Has the rain stopped since last week? <laughs> no, I don't think the rain's ever going to stop. I'm tempted to build an ark. Oh man, sail away! You have bugs down there too. You have big bugs in the south. We don't we we don't have such hellacious bugs up here yeah bugs down here are a method of travel they're really <laughs> large oh man well anyway uh what's in the news this week there's a a few things first of all i got some emails you know i'm a regional director and uh i see a lot of interesting mail across my inbox from the regional directors list and um one of the guys had a customer uh who Wants to move to .NET, but wondering why it hasn't been taken up very quickly. And he says, as per Bill Gates' recent statements, and he says he's making a strong case from the developer standpoint, but he can only give vague details from the promotion and marketing side and the customers asking questions about how much effort and money Microsoft is putting into building the .NET developer base, etc. You know, wondering if you know if that little comment by Bill means the handwriting is on the wall. And the comment I'm speaking about is um, where where Bill said something to the effect that he was sort of not happy with the effects of their marketing or, or of .NET or something like that. So a Microsoft guy uh, came online and said that Bill Gates' statements were taken really out of context and that you need to see the full transcript of the .NET briefing day, which was what he's referring to, to understand that Bill was talking about the process that they had made towards delivering on the whole vision that Bill had described back in the at Forum 2000. And he particularly was talking about uh, slow areas around .NET My Services. Um, so he really uh, was taken out of context there. And as a matter of fact, uh, he goes on to say that Microsoft is now investing more than $5 billion in research and development and it can be argued that at least half of that, if not more, is going directly to support the .NET initiatives. He said he can't comment on the specifics of how much is going into the developer base, building the developer base, or marketing, but he thinks it's safe to say that almost everything they do is around those two activities. So the customer should look at uh, their R&D spend and their overall marketing spend and assign the vast majority of that to .NET. In other words, if your customer believes in Microsoft's marketing and R&D investments as a whole, they should believe in .NET. So I thought that was a pretty good message and an important one that people need to hear. Sure. I've never seen uh, you know marketing for a technology like this, uh, really from Microsoft or any other company, as long as, I, as I've been around. It's pretty amazing. I also came across the, the document that uh, Dan Appleman was talking about in his show a few weeks ago which is the Microsoft Developer Tools Roadmap uh, 2002 to 2004, which was posted August 26th. But, you know, nobody that I talked to knows about it, including me. I didn't know about it until I searched for the name Everett, 
on Visual Studio on, on uh, MSDN. And it's at msdn.microsoft.com slash vstudio slash product uh, info slash roadmap.asp. And it basically lays out what's, what's coming up in the next version of Visual Studio and the next version of .NET. And in the next version of uh, um, Windows, which is Yukon, uh, it's an amazing document. And I was, as I was asking you right before we started taping, Mark, I was thinking that this might have been a not a public document because right. there, there was I, stuff. In, I was unaware of it until you mentioned it. Yeah, there's stuff in here that I've been told is under NDA. One of the interesting things is about uh, something that's called Visual Studio for Yukon, which is. SQL Server and Visual Studio being even more tightly integrated, SQL Server will host the CLR, and developers can leverage their development skills, whether they are building on the middle tier or the data tier in their applications. So basically, we're talking about stored procedures in VBNet? Yeah, that's going to be pretty amazing. And you know, I'm really glad that something's finally been published about this. I've brought this up to a variety of people and just said, you know, this is the rumor I've heard about one day... Perhaps you're going to write stored procedures and, and VB.NET or your favorite .NET language. They all look at me like I'm crazy. Now, this is really good evidence that, uh, although it isn't widely publicized, it's good evidence that this isn't just a, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes kind of thing that Microsoft is doing. I mean, .NET is huge. In fact, you know, at some point, you're not going to be able to write software for Windows in any other platform but .NET. In other words, you're writing Windows software, it's going to touch .NET at some time. So anyway, that's what I wanted to bring up and, and talk about. I also saw a thing on PressPass at Microsoft.com that Microsoft and Hewlett-Packard uh, are teaming up to accelerate the next generation of computing with .NET, and specifically that the two companies are uh, coming out with an initiative, a worldwide initiative, to spend a total investment of more than $50 million designed to respond to customer demand for .NET solutions and web services, which means um, training the specialized forces of .NET consultants and system architects, blah, blah, blah. Um, just an incredible amount of cash that they're laying out to, to get .NET rolling. Um, so, you know, that doesn't sound like they're disappointed with anything. No, you're right, and uh, I'm I'm really happy to see the initiative out there to to get people trained. Me too. I mean, I I couldn't stress enough Obviously. how important I think it is that uh, you know if you're a developer, you don't just uh, go about learning .NET haphazardly. Um, on the phone tonight is a very special guest who is a veteran of the VB industry from the Association for Competitive Technology in Washington D.C. Please welcome Mr. Jonathan Zuck. Jonathan, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? Great. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Hey, Jonathan, it's great to have you with us tonight. I'm very excited about uh, the topics we're going to get into. I'm I'm excited too. I mean, I uh, my most of my career I've spent uh, in the technology, and now I'm spending most of my time defending it. <laughs> so it's been an interesting. Uh, interesting transition for me. So you started out in this business, in the computer business, as a developer, right? Uh, that's right. Um, I mean, I was, uh, started professionally in about 1987 uh, doing uh, quick basic uh, applications for DOS. and Back in the days of Crescent and Ethan Weiner and all that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, you were one of our great allies back then. 
and uh, you know went on to uh, do a lot with Visual Basic and build a lot of enterprise applications in the DC area for Fortune 50 companies and uh, and the and the government. Well, you wrote a book or two along the way, uh, didn't you? Uh, yeah, sure did. I mean, it's a uh, <laughs> wrote a book for the Weight Group, one for ZD, and uh, on uh, on Visual Basic and uh, a lot of uh, utilities and and database that centric stuff. I had a newsletter, monthly newsletter for a while called VVZ, an electronic newsletter. Oh yeah. Distributed in help file format. I remember that. Um and uh so I've certainly been a lurker. I mean uh, the the it's original fun. lurking took place on computer. It's funny you mentioned that word, <laughs> lurker. <laughs> Tell everybody what that's all about. Well, lurker was a one of the first uh open source projects in the visual basic yeah. uh, arena that uh was related to uh, uh, doing work on CompuServe, actually. Yeah, CompuServe was the sort of the epicenter of Visual Basic forum activity in the community. And uh, Lurker was a program. Did you actually write it? It was a group. Uh, it was a group effort. Yeah. The program, to it was an offline reader, right? That's right, exactly, that was yeah. written in Visual Basic. Yeah, very cool. So tell everybody what you're doing now. Well... I'll, I'll begin by giving everybody a warning, which is that if you ever get an email from somebody that you know with a subject, you're perfect, you should delete it right away. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, about, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, Mike Sachs, who uh, many of you know because he's the uh, head of Sachs Software that does Sachs.com objects and right. Sachs-based engine and stuff like that, uh, together with some other uh, CEOs, uh, created a trade association uh, because they were concerned that small IT businesses weren't adequately represented in Washington. And in about six months into it, they realized that they still weren't because they didn't have anybody in D.C. Hmm. And I got this now famous email uh, that I made the mistake <laughs> of opening, and, and in which Mike asked if I'd be interested in doing a little outreach uh, to policymakers in the media you know, part time. You know, you can still make a living, uh, but uh, right. but you know, part time do this, and then of course, inevitably, part time became full time, became overtime, became all the time. And, As it turned uh, out, you were perfect. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's a little bit like being on jury duty. A lot of people spend a, a lot of intellectual energy getting off of jury duty, <laughs> but once you've served on a jury, you recognize how important it was for you to be there. Agreed. And uh, and I think that uh, what we're doing in Washington feels the same way. So what do you do in Washington? Well, the Association for Competitive Technology, or ACT, is a, a trade association that now represents over 3,000 IT companies and professionals around the country. And our job is to educate uh, policymakers in the media about the technology industry and about technology uh, so that they can uh, better understand things like cookies and browsers and uh, uh, P3P and XML and things like that, and then also to help uh, folks in the IT industry better understand what's going on in Washington and how it might affect them. So, Jonathan, is that uh, something like a lobbying group? Would that be an appropriate term? Okay, now the hair on the back of my neck always goes up when I hear that term because uh, lobbyists are famous uh, in this city for basically being people that used to work on the Hill but are now getting paid hard to leverage their relationships hmm. that they formed while working in government and hop from issue to issue. And certainly uh, not how you. we're different is that we come out of the industry and uh, we're trading on substance. So if you had to pick one cause, you know, one thing that uh, 
that you need to do day after day after day because uh, because people aren't getting it, what would that cause be? Well, the irony is that while small businesses are often used as a justification to regulate, small businesses are often most harmed by regulation because they don't have the full-time lobbyists in Washington and the lawyers to deal with regulations. Instead, uh, a lot of intervention into an industry by the government raises the costs of doing business. And so if there's one message, it's that uh, um, uh, an open and competitive marketplace is ultimately better for the small IT businesses than uh, an overregulated one. I mean, one thing I've always said is you can tell a regulated industry because you can name everyone in it. Yeah, that's true. So you're basically uh, saying let the market decide what's good software. The, the government has no uh, place in, in telling us what we can and cannot use or buy or... Um, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the bottom line is is that the role of government ought to be to protect consumers from decisions they can't make, uh, not the ones that they can. And when the government gets involved in designing software, those of us that have worked with the government in designing software know that that's problematic and that the best people to ultimately design software are technologists under the tight scrutiny of the customers that they serve. Well, I know working for uh, a lot of small companies, uh, you know, we've had lots of conversations uh, with me as a consultant about technology, but very few about politics at all. I'm, I'm wondering, really, if uh, companies realize that they need an advocate up in D.C. Well, it's uh, definitely the IT industry has come very late uh, to Washington, and in, in large measure that's because everything was going on fine. And for most of the folks in our industry, Washington was like part of the Smithsonian or something. You know, uh, for day four of your tour, go and get a pass and watch the funny-looking guys debate, uh, you know, the issues of our day. But they, it didn't seem like anything that really affected us. And I think in many respects, the Microsoft case in particular woke us up to the fact uh, that the federal government can be very influential in the way that we do business. Um, well, if we you can suddenly say that find the middleware pulled out of windows, uh, will recognize very quickly uh, how critical the government can be in, in each and every one of our businesses. Hey, uh, Jonathan, do you, have, you watch public television and listen to public radio, I take it. Uh, sometimes, sure. Um, have you seen this documentary that's been going on? It was a three-part series called uh, Commanding Heights. Which I is, haven't, actually. It's the, about the battle for the world economy. And it talks about history over the last hundred years, the last uh, century, uh, in terms of markets and the philosophy of open markets and how that central idea of having an open marketplace in your country and in international trade has broken down uh, basically autocratic governments all across the world and that one by one these governments are falling into line with democracy. But what gets them there is by enabling free trade. And the whole, it's a big argument, it's a three-hour argument that, you know, free trade is the, the key to freedom and the key to uh, a better life. And so they talk about the guys in Chicago who were advocates of free market systems that weren't always taken so seriously. And then, of course, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, you know, breaking open that uh, the free market system, uh, get rid, getting rid of price caps, getting rid of wage caps, getting rid of all the co controls and regulations that they had on the marketplace. And after some brief period of pain, 
there's always a long period of growth. So anyway, I mean, I mean that's certainly true. I mean, I think it's uh, very complicated because things like free trade help the economy and everyone in a macroeconomic sense, but we often are asked to focus on micro microeconomic issues like, you know, a specific family that you know lost their job because they were displaced by imports or something like that, and, right. and it can be heart wrenching uh, to try and juxtapose what's good for the the many and 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 see that sometimes it's hard uh on the few um but trade has generally been good not only for our own economy but as you say has uh helped with human rights and, and democratization around the world and uh one of the things we work on is is uh trying to ensure free trade both into and out of uh the United States because it, it is ultimately the best thing for our economy and for the economy of the world yeah, I was just going to ask you, uh, you know, really over the last year, Jonathan, uh, what are some hot issues that you've been working on? Um, sure. I mean, the, uh, there's been a number of issues, and, and a lot of them, uh, unfortunately, have to do with uh, companies kind of coming to Washington and, and asking for special favors or asking for regulations to be imposed on, uh, on their competitors, and, the, and that we see a little bit too much of that uh, in Washington. And as I said, a lot of the wake-up call for our industry was the Microsoft case, you know, where, you know, Jim Barksdale uh, at Netscape was able to, uh, you know, with about three years of lobbying, has, you know, was able to uh, get the Department of Justice to bring a suit against Microsoft, uh, you know, for things that I think the huge majority of people in the industry uh, didn't feel were legitimate. And even as that case has progressed, some of the proposals that have come out really involve the government getting in the the job of designing software, uh, which could ultimately be bad for all of us. And uh, so, I mean, that's been a that's been a really big issue, the Microsoft case, certainly, and, and one that affects all .NET developers because at the center of that case is the very notion of middleware and whether or not it belongs in an operating system. And uh, let me ask you this: the central um, idea of the case is that Microsoft has a monopoly on the technology that's used. And uh, that's the central argument in the well, case. Am I right? It, not exactly. I mean, I mean, one of the arguments is whether or not you can have a monopoly in this kind of market. Well, right. But that's, if, you, if you assume yeah. that you do have a monopoly, the real issue was whether or not um, Microsoft's, uh, you know, workings with middleware acted to preserve that monopoly. So it wasn't anything about the monopoly being illegal, but was the preservation of that monopoly illegal by making it hard for other middleware competitors, such as, at least in theory, uh, Netscape and, and, uh, and Java uh, on the operating system. Do you think there's anything different about the Microsoft monopoly, if you want to call it that, and let's say the, del the telecommunications monopoly of AT&T? What are the differences that you can see there? Well, there's an awful lot of differences um, between Microsoft and any of the sort of classic monopolies. I mean, well, one of them is is a simple barrier to entry issue. Um, you know, the difficulty of starting a software company is a lot different than trying to start a railroad or a power company. And so we see new entries into our market all the time. And in fact, uh, we've seen as big as 60% market share changes in as little as 18 months in the software industry. And that was at a time when you had to go down to Egghead, buy new software, learn it, install it, convert your files. Now when switching vendors is as easy as typing a new URL, those switching costs are even lower than they might be otherwise. 
Uh, with AT&T, I mean, uh, the big difference is uh, fundamentally that it was a government-created monopoly. Um, it didn't have to do with consumers making a choice uh, between competitors. It had to do with the government basically ensuring return on investment and saying that only one company could lay wire and things of that sort. Again, a kind of constraint that's never existed in our industry. So, so there's a lot of differences. So people have always had the free choice to use Linux or Macs or whatever. It's just that they would use Windows because that's what made them more productive because everybody else is using it because it's more of a standard. Is that it? Um, well, part of it's a standard, and 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 one and the the theory of the case is that the existence of a standard acts to stabilize and protect a monopoly, and that, and that's a complicated thing. I mean, to some extent, sure, you have this notion. Of, of what are called network effects, which is that, you know, a fax machine is more useful if there are other fax machines in the world, right? right. I mean, it, without them, uh, you know, the fax machine wouldn't take hold because there'd be nobody to fax to. And doesn't the standard exist because people chose it to exist? And that's exactly right. If people gravitate toward a standard, but ultimately they made choices to bring about that standard, and it's going to take a superior product, not, not even an equivalent product, probably to undermine that standard. And, and that's always the way our industry's been. I mean, companies that fail to stay ahead of the curve do, in fact, generally get uh, left by the side of the road. But uh, you do need to bring a better product to market. Bringing just another one is not going to be good enough in an environment in which people are generally satisfied. Jonathan, I got a, a good question on my mind, I think. Uh, you know, the, uh, the .NET framework is itself going to be rolled out in service packs in the future. It'll become... Uh, part of the operating system. Uh, is there any need for Microsoft to worry about, uh, you know, a fight popping up uh, over that being integrated into the operating system? Um, I mean, there certainly is. I mean, that's why we need to be vigilant and why we encourage uh, developers and commercial software companies and others to speak up is because there's a very real threat that the government uh, will see that as unfair competition for, say, uh, J2E. So if uh, .NET can be part of the operating system and they can't, then how can they possibly compete? Hey, I bet you didn't know that yours truly is the conference chair for Visual Basic Connections, which is a conference that's happening October 27th through the 30th at the Hyatt Grand Cypress Resort in Orlando, Florida. I have personally picked the speakers for the VB track, and let me tell you, these are some heavy hitters. We're talking about Billy Hollis, myself, Fernando Guerrero on SQL, uh, Ken Getz, Rockford Lotka, uh, Pat Hines, you know Pat Hines, Nicholas Landry, uh, Tim Landgrave, Tom Eberhard, Tim Huckabee, Harry Bixhorn from Microsoft, Allison Balter, Ken Spencer. You know, these are the guys that are out there actually writing the code. Uh, and uh, you're going to walk away with a lot of stuff you're not going to see anywhere else. So I would encourage you to go to vsconnections.com and sign up. Franklin's Net is going to have a booth at VS Connections. And we're actually going to record .NET Rocks that week from the booth. And so if you stop by, you'll get to ask questions in person uh, to some of your favorite authors and speakers, and we're going to record the whole thing and put it on the air, www.vsconnections.com. Now let's get back to our talk with Jonathan Zuck. 
And we're talking with Jonathan Zook from the Association for Competitive Technology in Washington, D.C. Uh, Jonathan, don't you think Microsoft has a better product in .NET um, over Java? You know, if you compare the two as a middleware solution, do you think .NET is a better product? Or let me, let me put it another way. At a very way. fundamental level, they provide an API level and a set of services that sit on top of an operating system. Right. So just as I could port .NET to other operating systems, I have Java on multiple operating systems. Is the alternative to disallow them from developing .NET at all? I mean, again, I don't know who to speak on behalf of. If you want my own opinion, <laughs> then I think, yeah, they should be left alone. Yeah. But it, when we talk about you know, the issue that's at hand, the argument might be made not that Microsoft shouldn't be allowed to uh, develop middleware, but that instead that they shouldn't be able to bundle it with the operating system. Oh, I see. That it would be something that would have to go out and compete as middleware against other middleware that's on the market independent of the operating system. I see. All right, so they they couldn't force them to sell the framework. I mean, right now it's basically... You know, free. The framework is not going to cost you anything. The uh, development tools will. So well, are we saying that uh, they could be forced to sell the framework? Uh, well, wait a minute. If it becomes part of the operating system, why not just make it an enhancement to the operating system? Why, why, isn't, why isn't it an operating system? It, as far as I'm concerned, it is an operating system. <laughs> and, and, and again, I'm inclined to agree with you because even Windows is a form of middleware, right? Of I mean, course. I mean, I mean what are we all, yeah, what are we all going to write DDI machine code? And everything else are all middleware. Uh, you're definitely preaching to the choir. Yeah. But right now, as it stands at this very moment, .NET is something that sits on top of Windows. Correct. In the same way that Java does. It, it's a layer. In other words, someone could make a decision to build their applications to .NET, or they could make a decision to build their applications to Java. Sure. And you're going to have a lot of debates about which is better, but that sure. isn't really the issue. That's not the, the issue. The question is whether or not... Uh, whatever that is, you know, the 17-hour download of either one of them or something, should that be something? Should that be an equalizing effect, or should Microsoft be able to make it easier to get to .NET than it is to get to Java? Well, um, I think if you're a .NET developer listening out there in .NET land, uh, you you have a reason here to be concerned. And, and, and that's exactly my point. I mean, because I'm because I'm speaking with two .NET enthusiasts. Right, right now, I'm, you're, I'm sort of taking the other side to make you understand the argument, but that's right. the kind of argument that we get involved in all the time, and we have been long advocates ever since allowing Microsoft to integrate a browser into the operating system, right. because it is essentially platform technology, right. um, not, not, uh, not an application like Office or something. And uh, it's a you know it's a it's a natural evolution for the operating system to be able to get to the internet and be able to uh, make use of web services and and things like that. Those are natural platform functions. But those kinds of discussions with non-technical people uh, yeah. can be very hard to have. Sometimes they can be very hard. Right. Very I hard. I cannot imagine uh, you know how you make arguments to non-technical people. We're all three technologists, and we can talk about this from you know a common background. I, I just cannot imagine what you go through making arguments to uh, people that are not familiar with technology. Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah, well, I'm losing hair and gaining weight. It's a tough thing to do, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, it's it's incredibly important. I mean, you know, when the when the lawyer for the Department of Justice was reading some email uh, very early <laughs> on in the case, was he reading an email out of Microsoft, and they got to the word L-O-G-I-N, and he says, Login. Yeah. I knew that I didn't want lawyers deciding what, what should and shouldn't be in an operating Login. system. 
Um, there was a head of another trade association that that was one of the you know part of the Microsoft Haters Club that even had the unmitigated gall. This is a lawyer to say that there were too many lines of source code in Windows. Oh man! And I'm like, what, have you ever written a line of source code? <laughs> so I mean, I, I mean, it's it's a it's incredible, but it's but it's an imperative that we take the time to speak up and make people understand technology. I mean, for a long time, people on the Hill were led to believe that cookies were a way to invade your computer and get at your personal information. Right. And, and you know, I, I went to testify before Congress, and I took a poster that had this, you know, number on it, and I said, this is a cookie. Yeah. And it was one that was left on my computer by Senate.gov. It's not something that, uh, you know, invades my computer but allows a, a machine to recognize that I've come back to the same website. Can you see anything in Microsoft's marketing of .NET that is sort of, um, oh, how shall I say, uh, hedging them against future claims that they know are definitely going to come down the pike? Well, to their credit and to their fault, Microsoft doesn't do very much hedging. Okay. Um, they 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 have always been. They tell it like it is. Head. I mean, IBM got a lot of criticism because in the course of their antitrust troubles, that they came ultimately came out of as victors, they allow lawyers to transform the entire company. And, and Microsoft has at least been good about not doing that. They have stayed the course. Yeah. They said, lawyers, you go fight this and let us keep doing what we're doing, and we're going to focus on delivering technology. Mm -hmm. And I certainly admire that as a technologist. Yeah, me too. As somebody trying to help them in a public policy arena, you know, it can frequently be frustrating. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have to give props for, for, for staying the course. So what's the best diner in Washington, D.C.? The best diner in Washington, D.C.? Well, I think probably the best diner is actually the Silver Diner, which is unfortunately outside Washington, D.C. It's one in Tyson's and one uh, up in Maryland. But the best one right in D.C. is probably the American City Diner on Connecticut Avenue. What do you, what's, what's the deal with that, then? Why is this so good? Um, well, they've got a great uh, chili omelet. <laughs> And, uh, we're getting we're getting down to the important stuff. Yeah, let's now. get. Well, I am a developer, I guess. I right? mean, you know, and, and I'm also, you know, they're I'm open all a, night long. You I'm know. a fan of the uh, of the chocolate malted too. You have to be. I mean, if you're a developer, it's 3 a.m. You're hungry. You go to a diner. You That's know? right. Yeah, so. I mean, because you can only eat so many 7-Eleven hot dogs. Oh right? God, I, I've had too many. Um, what I'm wondering, of course, is are developers really making the transition to? Uh, to Red Bull, or are they sticking with the perennial favorites uh, like Jolt and Mountain Dew? Well, I heard that Jolt now has like six or seven flavors. What's up with that? Exactly. Well, the Mountain Dew has some sort of weird pink version or something, the com the commie version of Mountain Dew or something. I don't That's know. That's a red version. I've seen that. Code I, red, right? Yeah, I think Mountain Dew is one of those things that developers think they have to drink in order to be a developer. Well, I think you do, right? I mean, It's always the first soda to go in my classes. And it's a you know and the and the uh, and the upside about Mountain Dew is that you could probably shake it like crazy and open it, and it's such a dense liquid that it still won't go spraying out of the can. That has chock, to frighten you a little bit. Chock full of wholesome goodness. Exactly. Mm. Right. And if you're out of antifreeze in the winter, you can use Mountain Dew. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's a it's a you know why why go with the you know the wimpy Coca Cola when you can drink Mountain Coke Dew? Coke is old school, right? The um. So what's what's the deal with open source and why is it a threat? 
Well, there are two things, two movements going on, political movements going on with respect to open source. I mean, there's obviously an open source movement, uh, which is interesting from an academic standpoint. And what's going to happen, you know, it, it sort of falls out the tools that, for which there's broad utility get the kind of peer review that really makes open source work, like Apache and Linux. But, you know, you know, Bill's recipe database may not be getting the same kind of quality assurance yeah, in right. an open source environment as something like Apache. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting movement. It's something that's worth watching, and I think that it provides viable competition uh, for the commercial software marketplace. Interestingly, uh, Dan Appleman told us that he has developed a open source obfuscator. Oh, and, right. Yeah, it's 35 bucks. Comes with full source code, and, and he's quite proud of it. I guess the question is, by open source, does he mean that I can fully I can distribute it to others, modified, yeah, without paying any license back to him? Yeah, well, that's the definition of open source. Get a lot for your thirty-five dollars there. So, I mean, that he's not you're not going to make too many thirty-five dollars. No, of course though. not, of course not. But the um, I don't think he looked at it as a money-making sure. opportunity. It's a PR. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> The, um, Good tool, the, too. Um, I guess the thing about the, where there's a political component to the movement as well, and that's some cause for concern. Right. The two big policy agendas for the uh, open source and free software movement, the Rich Stallman and, and Ralph Nader guys, is that um, uh, the government uh, passed regulations that limit procurement to open source software. And if you take a minute to think about the implications of yeah, that. Yeah, say that again. There's a movement to get governments, uh, local governments, state governments, federal government, and governments internationally, to only procure open source software. Only for their government use? That's right. So, like, where? Where is this happening? Well, there's already there's there's something like six to eight hundred of these laws that what? are you know being proposed around the world. What? Um, for and, countries, uh, for states, for huh? They're all over the place. Uh, there's one going. There's one being proposed in California. There was one passed in Peru and in the European Union. In California, for a town, for a city, for, for the state, for the whole state. That's right. In so other is there words, some central dark force behind all this. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a. Uh, I don't know if you want to categorize it as a central <laughs> dark force. Well, it is in a way because you know this this uh, a procurement bias is once again the government kind of picking winners and losers, right. not based on the quality of software, but on the method by which it was developed. So you're basically saying California, somebody in California wants to pass a bill that says the state for all state software can only run open source software. That's right. Nothing that you can buy at Staples. Well, I guess you could buy open source You can buy Red Hat Linux at Staples. Well, okay, but... But yeah, the point is is that they ought to be able to buy one copy of your software and distribute it around the government. They should have the ability to change it and distribute it. Um, and uh, um, and so the commercial software vendors out there, um, you know, think about the component vendors. Uh, you know, the government won't be able to buy components for software they build themselves that aren't open source. Hmm. And uh, open source, uh, you know, it provided, depending on what form that takes, if it uses the general public license, means that you, you lose the right, essentially, to your intellectual property once you make one sale. Right. And, uh, and so that kind of procurement bias doesn't mean that open source is competing on its own merits. Instead, it's getting a bias that, that you have to purchase it, which means that it no longer even gets the competition 
that it now gets from the commercial software marketplace. Well, you know, that sounds outrageous. Is there, I guess, chance that that, that could come to be in the future? Well, there are several uh, national legislatures that have passed legislation like that. So, I mean, it, it it's certainly something that, if it gains momentum, uh, can happen with people without people really recognizing what they're doing. I think that there will be practical problems associated with the implementation of it that might lead to it getting repealed. I don't know. But a lot of damage could be caused uh, along the way. So, um, Jonathan, just tell me, and I know what you're going to say, uh, send email or letters, but what exactly can the concerned listener do about this to make a difference? Send emails or letters. <laughs> What? <laughs> Go to your website and. Is this and... like cross examination? You only ask questions you already know the answer to. No, I mean, the, the, yes, I mean, the, I think that you should join uh, local trade groups. You should uh, get involved with groups like ours that you know that don't really cost anything to become involved with. We can keep you informed about these things. But yeah, ultimately, it's showing up for town hall meetings. It's writing letters to your member of Congress. Uh, in California, they're called assemblymen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a the California Assembly is going to need to hear loud and clear that uh, uh, that this is a bad idea. And what's your URL there? Um, we are at www.actonline.org. ACT, as in Association for Competitive Technology. ACTonline.org. Okay. Don't forget that it's .org and not .com. Because you are a non-profit, a non-profit organization. Right. I was uh, browsing your your uh, site today. I did notice that uh, you can sign up for free uh, to become a member, and it looks like you have different options for uh, for larger companies. Uh, what was it? Something like fifty dollars per million dollars of revenue generated. That's right. So I mean, it, for most companies in our membership, they're paying about a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks to be members, but individuals can join for free. And what what sort of benefits uh, do you get? Well, it's not the typical kind of trade uh, service trade association where we're, you know, offering you discounts at the Holiday Inn or anything like that. But it's it's more about <laughs> being informed about the things that could affect your business or a cheese omelet at the giving the you the opportunity uh, to become involved in a targeted way. So instead of having to kind of follow it yourself and and have it detract from your real business, we try in a very sort of laser beam fashion to say here are the three things you need to do this year. Uh, to make sure that things bad things don't happen to your business. Well, can you mention some companies that are already members that we we might know? Um, well, sure. I mean, a, a lot of the folks that uh, a lot of the folks that you know, a lot of small businesses you know, like from the uh, component vendor community, for example, are all members. I mean, the founding members of uh, of Act include SAC Software, uh, Infragistics, uh, formerly Sheridan, right, um, and uh, Sam Patterson and Component Source. Uh, Charles Crystal, all good guys. Um, you know Gordon Eubanks of Semantic, Ted Johnson of Viz, you know Vizio, which is now part of Microsoft. Um, and then there's a few big companies. Microsoft's a member, eBay's a member, Orbitz is a member, uh, Symantec. I mean, those are some of the corporate software and technology is a big reseller that's a member. Um, you know, but it's it's just everyday guys. You know, I mean, uh, you had Tim Huckabee on, and and they're a member. Uh, Joe Homnick, who runs a great training uh, company down in Florida, the Homnicks are, are members. Huckabee's not on yet. He's coming up, but uh, he's not. Oh, on. I thought he was. All right. yeah. I thought he'd already been on. He's coming up. Okay, so you can use that as an act promo later on. There you go. <laughs> after you've interviewed him. <laughs> go back, folks, and listen to this three weeks from now, and this will make <laughs> exactly. sense. Exactly. 
Um, um, yeah, this is going to be the kind of conversation people are going to want to listen to more than once, I think. Right. Uh, Especially really. that diner bit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, there's one other uh, issue that uh, is a danger that we need to be aware of, and that is um, um, making government uh, technology and R&D into open source software. So, for example, a lot of the encryption we use now uh, came out of the government in the first place. Um, under a kind of open source license, but that didn't require, didn't have the same kind of viral uh, components in it that the general public uh, license does. So think about it, if you use any software that got produced by the government research grants, uh, it would lead your software to become open source. That could be kind of a dangerous thing as well. So, um, is, you know, software that your tax dollars helped to create. Is the government concerned about you encrypting your data? Um, that's a separate issue. Um, right around September 11th, there were some proposals to force backdoors into all encrypted software so the government and law enforcement agencies could get into them. But uh, we worked pretty hard to defeat that um, because it wouldn't be necessarily that effective um, because you could just encrypt things before you, before you loaded it into your email system or whatever. Um, but the other thing is, is that, uh, you know, the software sold by... Uh, companies abroad uh, didn't suffer under similar restrictions, and so all it would do was essentially unfairly disadvantage U.S. software developers at the expense of their foreign competitors. So uh, we worked pretty hard on that issue and made sure that the Patriot Act didn't end up including that kind of backdoor language. So your organization was actually helpful and instrumental, maybe, in uh, helping oh, defeat definitely, that? Oh, definitely, yeah, because we were able to point out the small business implications and the uh, implications for comp you know, foreign competition. Wow. If, uh, uh, if this happened. Well, we all owe you a debt of gratitude for that. So so they're not concerned anymore with that. But um, what what about the deal with exporting cryptography? What's the... Well, that's an ongoing debate. It's something, again, that we worked on and that the entire tech industry has worked pretty hard on. We can't take, you know, uh, you know front-line credit for that. But that's been, a, uh, that's been an ongoing issue where um, there have been these encryption export controls that essentially say that you can't export products with strong encryption in them for national security reasons. I mean, the complication with that, of course, is that, uh, um, you know, once again, foreign competitors already had 128-bit encryption, so folks would just buy from them instead. And uh, and so we needed to make sure that those export controls kept up to, to date with the international marketplace. So does that mean that Chinese Windows doesn't have the crypto API in it? Uh, it had, I mean, there's some there's some cryptography, but it it uh, isn't the same level of uh, encryption capability. Okay, that's under, that's interesting to know. Do you know if .NET is the same way? Well, I don't know how it currently stands because I do know now that more uh, encryption can be exported than was uh, that was previously the case. I mean, that mm. actually was something that got resolved under the Clinton administration. If you think about it, you know, the more trade barriers open between uh, countries, the more those things are going to be relaxed. I think. Well, yes and no. I mean, these were separate. When you're dealing with national security technologies, you have okay. situations where Game Boys aren't allowed to be oh. exported because they're considered national security risk, and that, speaking has, that of, overrides a trade agreement. Speaking of Game Boys, did you follow that whole thing about Greece? No. On the RD list? One of the, uh, the, the, the Greek regional director uh, said that you guys aren't going to believe this, but oh, right, Greece right. has outlawed video games, or or there was a... There was a law that came to pass, and it was short-lived. Believe me, it only took a week for him to, to, to go back the other way. 
but they outlawed video games, and if you were caught playing a video game, you could be fined severely. Um, game Boys, even computer games, if you went into a coffee shop in Greece and sat down and started playing solitaire, you could be go you could go to jail. That's right. Yeah. Well, and they, I mean, and and things only... like that happen all the time when when folks only hear from some people uh, when trying to make public policy. I mean, hmm. that's a great segue into the Hollings Bill okay. uh, that's being proposed right now related to digital rights management. Uh, the, digital uh, rights of... You know, the content... I'm sorry, do I want to talk about what digital rights management is? Yeah, what's, it, what's digital rights management? Digital rights management is essentially uh, the technology that facilitates... Um, copyright protection of, of content. And, Media. Uh, and whether it's copyright or just protection of content, it's essentially technology that facilitates a contract uh, between two people. In other words, if I put implement DRM technology on a movie, it might say that you're allowed to make one copy but not five copies, that kind of thing. Okay. So it's, it's sort of like more advanced copy protection for content. Okay. So that I mean, so it's a you know it's rights management. You know what are your rights and how do you manage them? Got it. You manage them digitally with DRM, right? Like I'll have to start a company now. But um, <laughs> the, you're uh, perfect. The the point is is that the contact guys, the Disney's and Foxes of the world, are very concerned about releasing their movies digitally because they don't want them immediately to be on Kazaa. As a matter of fact, they don't have to release them digitally. All they have to do is show them in the theater and some schmuck with a camera in exactly. the projection room. But yeah, so they're concerned, and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. Unless they think right. the content can be adequately protected, they d they don't want to release the movies, and and a lot of and they're making the argument that broadband needs a killer app, and that content is it, and et cetera, et cetera. So they've come to the government and asked for regulations that would essentially require copyright protection be in the hands of the IT industry, which means that government mandated copy protection software would have to be in every piece of software or hardware. They could potentially duplicate copyrighted material, including so, Windows. Given that we have an audience of software developers, let's take ourselves back to Basic A and <laughs> a line-numbered program that that reads ten input a dollar sign oh, yeah. twenty print a dollar sign. Right? Huh. If you think about it, that's a piece of software that's capable of duplicating uh, copyrighted content. Because if I typed copyrighted content into it. It could duplicate it or replicate it. Wow. And subject me to fines and imprisonment if I distributed that software. I can't believe anything like that would happen in this country. <laughs> uh, it's, am I naive? Uh, you were very naive. Am I just a child of the 80s where everything was okay and we never had to deal with Hitlers and Stalins? And... You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you, you, you grew up in a cherished little time. Yeah. It was even, better, even cooler than the 50s. When guys like you say, you know... I remember sitting back on my back porch and smoking a cigarette, listening to Sergeant Pepper's The Day It Came Out, and I tell him, yeah, I was two. <laughs> <laughs> I was learning to crawl. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, wasn't, right. uh, I wasn't much older, but um, the, uh, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that uh, things do, like that, do happen like that, especially yeah. in a very regulated environment. I mean, right. you think about how the airlines fight against each other. Right. You know, the big airlines come to Washington and get laws passed that require right. peanut-free aisles, for example. If you're a small airline, that may be taking half your revenue out of your airplane. You know, it's stuff like that goes on all the time. And the big guys always win. Exactly. And so that's why it's our constant focus to try and limit uh, government technology mandates and intervention into the industry because ultimately it's small businesses that uh, that suffer. Here's a good example. In the privacy debate, 
um, you know, more and more there's these conversations about protecting people's information, et cetera. And one of the issues that came up was children. And, you know, mm. it's easy to get around in a circle and sing kumbaya about protecting children's privacy and everything. Right. And, and so there was a little proposal that said that, well, uh, children's sites uh, have to get parental permission before collecting information from kids. Right. Right? That seems easy to agree with. Right. right. So they passed that law, and then it went to the FTC for something that's called rulemaking, which is where they take the law and try and translate it into something that they'll enforce, right? And uh, it was expanded to say that companies have to get permission from parents before children online can share information with each other. Hmm. So suddenly there were hall monitors and having to collect more information from kids than they were before in order to protect them from collecting information. And suddenly the cost of abiding by this regulation was something like two or $300,000 a year. So wow. small businesses that were clearing 50k a year trying to put out legitimate children's content were going out of business. So the kids ended up going to adult sites that didn't fall under these regulations. Wow. So, I mean, it's that same kind of um, a scenario where you have these law of unintended consequences that really comes into play in the context of legislation. And it seems like it's all common sense. I mean, I can't imagine somebody <laughs> looking at that in Washington and saying, yeah, we definitely want those kids going to adult sites, you know, screw them. Well, they don't think of it that way. Yeah. And nobody thought of it that way when they were supportive of the bill. That just became the implication of how right. it ended up getting enforced. Because they don't understand the technology. Okay, just a little preview of what's to come on .NET Rocks. We're going to be talking to uh, Mark Anders, who was instrumental in uh, developing the .NET framework at Microsoft. And we're going to talk with Bill Vaughn about SQL databases and ADO and why he's on a jihad against JET. And uh, that should be interesting. We've got a lot of other great guests lined up. Uh, you should reserve your ad spot now. And uh, we promise we're not going to have lots of commercials in .NET Rocks. We're just going to have a couple in every show. And uh, I guarantee you those are going to have maximum impact. So uh, when we had 800 downloads the first show, and it just kept going from there. So now we're not going to just accept anybody as a sponsor. If you have a product that serves the .NET community... We're going to have to check it out, and if we like it, then we'll endorse it, uh, and I will endorse it, but uh, we're going to definitely have to go through a screening process. Uh, uh, my reputation is on the line here, and I don't endorse products that I don't like. So if you're interested, go ahead and send email to sales at franklins.net. Now back to the show. Let's wind it up. Jonathan Zook, right here on .NET Rocks. Uh, you were talking about digital rights management, and I can couldn't help but think of Napster. And uh, you know, when when we talked about you know the movies that people make in in the box offices of theaters where their cameras, uh, you know, I know people, and I'm sure you do too, that brag about their collection of downloads. You know, right. oh, I got this movie and that movie and this movie and that thing. And I really think that you know somebody that's going to buy software and do it legally, they're they're going to do it no matter what. And I think guys that are going to steal it are going to find a way to steal it, uh, regardless of what we do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that. I mean, I, I think the bottom line, though, is that at some point you have to put your, draw a line in the sand and say that something's illegal. Yeah, that's and, true. Uh, and, I, and I think that, uh, you know, in this era of, you know, 
widespread peer-to-peer networking in digital versions of things. So it's not like the, you know, the old cassette bootleg that really wasn't as good as the commercial version. You can end up having something that's equivalent in quality to the commercial version. You really are going to undermine people's ability. That's true, and it really, it really did destroy the music industry. Well, that's right. And if, and if you think about the people, it's easy sometimes to vilify the recording industry. But if you think about, say, songwriters, they of have, which I am one, so I know. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they actually have statutory limits on what they can make yeah. for music. And in the case of downloaded digital music, it's $0.08 cents per download. Hmm. And if you think about the fact that 2.5 billion songs are downloaded off of services like Kazaa every month. Well, for free. All but... for free. Think about how much money songwriters are losing. And the huge majority of songwriters in this country are making less than 20k a year. Well, would they be downloaded if they were eight cents? Well, but eight cents is only is only covering the songwriter. It's not covering the performer and right. things like that. Well, you know, Napster is is you know tanked now, and you know, Kazaa popped up to replace that. No, totally. uh, there are a number of other, I guess, peer-to-peer uh, programs out there that do the same thing. I, I'm just wondering. I mean, how how do you really control it? Well, I mean, those are one of the those are some of the issues that are being debated. Um, you know, like I said, this Hollings legislation would create a situation in which, you know, you would copy protect music, and that every player in the world that could possibly play it needs to implement this technology. I don't think that's practical, but that's one of the things that's being attempted. Now, the other thing that's being attempted is uh, so-called self-help measures by the recording industry itself. Um, and that and that's very controversial as well, and people should speak up how they feel about that. Right. Well, now, how does this work? So, uh, for example, sort of... uh, one thing, one practice is called spoofing, which is flooding the services with with uh, decoy files. You know, you think you're down, you spend all night downloading Spider-Man, and it ends up being a two-hour lecture on the importance of copyright enforcement. <laughs> um, you know, or, you know, Sweet songs justice. where there's, there's a little sample of the song at the beginning and then it's static for the rest of it. So that you <laughs> sort of fill the system with, with and, and you decrease its reliability in that respect. And Kazaa is actually fighting back and trying to filter out decoy files. Which uh, of how course can they do that? The question, couldn't they filter out copyright uh, violating files as well? Um, so their arguments about that become so they could vicious. go they could go broke doing that too. But I mean, I mean you know, another thing you could do, and and this, you know, and part of it is the vocabulary we've established uh, helps to shade our feelings about things. But if you think about sort of a uh, a more benign version of a denial of service attack, what if you logged on essentially as a Kazaa user and just started downloading, you know, in, in sort of hyperbolic mode all of the copyrighted songs from from all the PCs that had thereby making it more difficult for others to download. You know, I I got to say I really think as a <laughs> as a technology that peer to peer is a great technology for sharing legitimate files even in an enterprise. Well, I mean, it's possible that there'll be a transformation in the marketplace and you'll only make your money through performances, but then again, right. you have to look back at the songwriter that's writing for other people. Right. and find out how they'll make their money. So, Jonathan, what's P3P? Well, P3P, or Platform for Privacy Preferences, uh, is a W3C project where a lot of XML standards, uh, you know, appear every day, basically. But this one is a broad industry effort uh, to define a grammar, an XML grammar, for stating what the privacy policies are of your website. Hmm. So right now, if a user comes to your website, they got to click on your privacy policy and read through the legalese and try and decipher how that affects them. 
and the, the alternative is to state your pr privacy policies via XML and instead have the browser read your privacy policy so that if you previously set preferences with your browser that say, I don't want to visit a site that shares information with third parties, the browser itself can check the privacy policy of the website before it even opens the page and Very can tell cool. you whether or not it violates your your, your privacy your so preferences. Is this a bill that's going out, or well, what's, no, what's the a, status of this? Well, no, it's an industry standard. It's not. It's, okay. What I mean, what what's cool about it in theory is that if it really takes off, then it's an example of the marketplace addressing consumer concerns about right. privacy and the use of their information, and hopefully eliminating the need for legislation, or at least the perceived need for legislation. Um, you know that would that would otherwise dogmatically specify what privacy policies you'd have to employ, which could be really limiting on your business practices. Yeah, you know that brings to mind another issue about the market, and and that is the fact that .NET code is written as intermediate language, and in fact the SDK comes with a disassembler, so that anybody can look at your intermediate language code, any application that you compile with a .NET compiler in Visual Studio Net or or not in Visual Studio Net, um, you can pr pretty much figure out almost the source code from that disassembler. And Microsoft was scheduled to and had uh, was preparing to create a tool called an obfuscator, which I mentioned before. For those of you who don't know what that is, what it does, it, it takes all the, the intermediate language code and takes out the English language stuff and replaces it with tokens and and mixes and matches things and moves it all around so your code still works and it runs, but it's all uh, all messed up. You can't make heads or tails of it from from uh, from looking at it. And uh, what happened was, my understanding was anyway, that Microsoft at the PDC before the release of uh, .NET version one said that they had a change that they weren't going to develop an ob. Uh, an obfuscator, and they were going to let third-party people do it. And my first reaction was, well, that's not very good, is it? You know, why, why doesn't Microsoft do that? But, you know, the more I thought about it, first of all, there are implications for Microsoft if they have, you know, the obfuscation technology, maybe they could reverse engineer it. But I think probably the bigger reason is that the market can do a better job of making your software secure than Microsoft has the, uh, has the initiative to do just as an additional tool in something they've already sold. I kind of like the idea of there being more than one ob, ob I can't even say it, obfuscator. <laughs> obfuscator. I need to get the hooch out to be able to talk about this stuff. You know, shake the moonshine out there, Al. Yeah. Give me that good old mountain doo-doo-doo. Yeah, but you, you know what I mean. I, uh, I like the idea of having uh, competing products out there that do the same thing. Well, I do too. May I may not like the fact they cost three grand, but you know, as in in Dan's case, it's thirty five bucks. You know, that's uh, it's better that the market uh, fleshes those things out um, because they're really driven. They're they're driven by the uh, the urge to feed their family to make a good product. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I think the real issue probably with Microsoft was liability. I mean, if right. you if you put on an obfuscator, there could be some implied warranty that your code is sufficiently obfuscated as to not be stealable. Okay. And uh, they don't necessarily want to take on that liability. Well, that's a good point. Um, you know, and you know, having multiple vendors doing obfuscation means that there's a lot of different ways things are getting obfuscated yeah. and stuff, and so right. nobody's going to build a deobfuscator that can, you know, work right. on everything and right. stuff. 
I think that when the marketplace is able to get out there and compete and provide products, whether it's for digital rights management technology, it's far superior to any kind of a, a mandated technology, particularly something that comes out of the government. I mean, you know, when the IRS wrote off $4 billion in trying to redo their systems, I mean, that's an indication of the kind of software that comes out of the government. Um, so, Jonathan, before we go, what, let me just... Um ask you what's your day like i mean do you do you actually write any code these days um what you know what what is a typical day like you're out hanging act? with strong thurman <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are you trying to uh help him figure out how to print <laughs> yeah, his exactly. documents in word or i'm out there propping up strong thurman but the uh the um yeah what is all this about not yet <laughs> Uh, we're doing impressions now. Is that <laughs> the other, uh, really fleshing I love Strom Thurmond. I'm sorry. <laughs> you bird dragon. But anyways, the um. You know what? The, I'm um, happy. My day is is interesting. I mean, there's a lot of different components to it. We talk to the media about technology. We try to hold seminars to make people better informed, so that they realize cookies aren't as bad as people thought that they were. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll involve the Cookie Monster in that those right. presentations. Um, you know, sometimes I have to go to the Hill and testify before different committees to help explain what goes on in the marketplace and what technologies uh, are really doing and things of that sort. And then every once in a while on weekends, you know, I do things like, you know, code the XML newsletter application that that uh, uh, that we won an award for and that I ultimately put the code up on, uh, you know, submitted as a, you know, uh, whatever that journal is. VBPJ, right? Um, you know, I did a uh, an XML-based newsletter, and we're doing an XML-based sort of content management system for our site and things like that. So, it's mostly been you know in-house development as opposed to as much article writing and things like that as they used to do. So, you think the future looks bright for .NET developers in general? I I definitely think the the future looks bright for .NET developers. I mean, I, again, those of us that uh, you know. Uh, used to watch Speed Racer on TV when we were kids, uh, knew about a project Microsoft promised a long time ago called Cairo. Cairo, that's right. Uh, All which, roads uh, to Cairo. is really beginning to be, uh, you know, a delivery on that promise. At the same time, there, there's, a, there's a train wreck ahead with uh, public policy and technological innovation. And I think that folks need to not be complacent about it and assume that somebody else is going to prevent bad things from happening. And once again, all I can say is the one way you know a regulated industry is you can name everyone in it. It's the small businesses that don't have time to deal with public policy now that won't need the time later. Very good. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on the show and, and uh, helping enlightening us, really. I've been enlightened um, as, to what's going, as to what's going on in Washington and, and with ACT. And please stop by again. I sure will. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you, John. Okay, good night.